I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The COVID-19 health crisis continues to affect the entire community. One thing we spotted is that we're seeing a marked difference in the treatment of educational institutions around the country, from schools to high schools to universities to early education services. So this week, we're going to ask the question, why have early childhood education and care services, and schools in particular, been treated differently during the COVID-19 health crisis? And to discuss that with me, as always, I'm here with Lisa and Leanne. How are you both going? Hello, Liam. Hello, Lisa. Hello, Liam. Hello, Leanne. Well, one of, we, we've put out quite a lot of episodes over the last little while. We're settling back into, I think, a normal release schedule, so this should be coming out on Friday. But one of the things we haven't really done too much over the last few episodes is just sort of done a bit of a personal check-in with each of us to see how we're all individually sort of managing this slightly weird and odd time. We've been, we've been emailing and talking, but I thought it might be a good chat to have. It's been quite a while since we recorded an episode, so I, I, I wanted to hear from the two of you how you were both going. Lisa, how are, how are things in Marrickville where you were joyously telling me the other day you haven't actually had a confirmed case there? <laughs> no, we haven't. Look, there's some things that are really good and some things that are really sad. So the really good thing about being in Marrickville is that there's no planes overhead. And after having lived under That's the so flight nice. path for the past 20 years... I've got to say, it's an exciting thing to be able to sleep past 6am in the morning. It's That's really impressive. That's so cool. It is. There's more birds in the sky than mm. I've ever heard because normally they're kind of running a bit shy of the, the big birds, you know, but now they're all there. But there's something really sad in Marrickville or in my world in that last the last time we recorded a podcast, I, I talked about how important it was to have banter online with you two. And as soon as I did that, everyone stopped communicating online. <laughs> Sorry, Lisa. I'm just too busy. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I picked a very bad time to have a bit of a social media and screen break, which was unfortunately just really needed. But it was, yes, it wasn't good for poor Lisa. Sorry. No, it's okay. I've coped anyway. <laughs> but I look overall. I think um, I'm just a bit bored now. I'm over it. I'm bored. Yeah. Oh, go on. Send entertainment to around to, to Lisa's house. Going. Everyone. Well, Lisa, this is a good time to get into podcasts. Heaven forbid. Oh God, listening to them. Oh, why would anyone want to do that? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, sure. What a good idea, Liam. Let's send our recommendations, Liam. Yeah, you can send Tour de France ones, Leanne, and I'll send some Doctor Who ones. Yeah, okay. Sounds great. Sounds good. Isn't there any Eurovision podcasts? Oh, God, there must be. I haven't heard one, though. Surely there must be. That's a good idea, actually. That <laughs> might be on my list of things to do. Well, Leanne, how are things with you? Uh, I think they're all right. Yeah, I started a new job about seven weeks ago, which I only spent a couple of weeks in the workplace. So I actually think that I have no idea what it's like to be in that workplace um, because everything's been done online. I think I'm a bit tired of Zoom meetings and the disconnection of that, even though you're like you're sort of overconnected, but then, oh, yeah. yeah, there's something very, very strange about 
that. I think you get get a little bit tired of that. Um, you get a lot done. I'm with Lisa on all of the beautiful birds and the and it's lovely to see families around. You know, different families getting out there and getting a bit of fresh air together. Um, and the thing that makes me yeah, and I miss like friends and and uh, family, extended family who I can't see. Um, but the thing that makes me the saddest is seeing the empty trains. It kind of breaks mm. my heart. It just, it just really breaks my heart to see it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know why. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So that makes me feel sad. But, yeah. You know, and because, Liam, we love our trains, right? So really. <laughs> this would be like. Thing, the perfect time for a nice train trip. I know, I know right? But we can't. Seeing empty trains should fill our heart with joy, but it doesn't. It makes me quite sad. Oh, no. I hadn't thought mm. about that because, of course, we can't really. In Canberra, we have the one big train that goes from Canberra to Sydney, and I'm nowhere near it, but that hadn't occurred to me. Oh, yeah. And, and the what other... about your trams? The, the light, light rail's still train? going. Well, you can, but it just seemed that, I mean. It seems like one of those things where unless you absolutely have to, which I just don't. So it's been quite a while since I've been on the tram. Mm, Okay. Yeah, and the the other thing is that, you know, you're supposed to achieve incredible goals in this isolation. So I felt sure staying alive, that's a good goal. I was so sure I'd have my PhD all done by now. (laughs) 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 But apparently it's not something I want to finish. (laughs) <laughs> well, if it's any consolation, Leanne, neither Lisa or I have our PhDs done either. So, you know, you're in good company. Yeah. Uh, and you're... we're not going to get them finished during COVID-19. It's unlikely. Because we haven't started them. But Yeah. <laughs> I may have left it too late at this point to get it done by the end of the crisis. Yeah. By the end of COVID. Yeah. I don't know. I reckon you could get it done. I think you could both get it done. Knock it off over a weekend. Can't be that yeah. hard. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> what about you, Liam? What's your feeling about what's what's happening for you? Well, I like I like your structure, both of you, as sort of good things and bad things, because I think I think it is, and I think it's 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 hard when we know there are people you know, suffering and um, you know having actual health outcomes, which uh, you know, which, which which isn't happening to me or anyone I know. We're kind of lucky in Canberra; we we leapt onto it pretty early, and as long as we keep out all you pesky New South Wales people, I think we'll be fine for the next little while. Um, but the yeah, it is, so there's there's definitely been good things. So it's been it's been there's been parts of being at home, you know, that's been good, and you know, um, spending more time with my children. I don't know if they they would see it the same way. Probably not, because they just get asked to clean and tidy things more often than um, when I'm not here. But um, uh, it's been um, yeah, and it, it has been nice actually. Just being we we've been making sure we've been having mandatory outside exercise time. We've been riding bikes and doing those kind of things, which you know we always kind of said we do, but then you know didn't. But this this kind of feels enforced now. It almost feels like a government directive or something. You have to go out and exercise properly once. A... <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It, it does, does yeah, yeah. Um, but it means everyone has a good. But at sleep. least they haven't specified what sort of exercise it is. Not like you know some countries in the world where you've got to do star jumps and stuff. Oh yeah, no, no thanks. Or, or only be out for an hour. That's the other thing. You know, I find that. Oh, that's a bit limiting, isn't it, if you want to go out for your extra walk? But anyway, sorry, Leanne, it's no, not about us. But I, you. <laughs> that's all right, but I, I agree with you, Leanne. The, 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 the amount of just, you know, particularly families that have just been out and about, it's like it is, 
you can see that we're kind of the nostalgia for some, you know, pre-iPad times have come from with just lots of, uh, you know, young children out and about on bikes running around causing chaos. It's been quite fun. Um, mm. Yes, but I will say the, the, the negatives have been, you know, with uh, I think it is a bit of a different experience with young children who are sort of stuck in the house and are probably reaching the limit of, you know, being sad about not being able to see grandparents and getting spoiled and, um, you know, even just things like, you know, we used to go to Questacon, you know, once a month or something and um, and play around there or just go to even just playgrounds and we just can't do that now. So the our inventiveness around what we can do around that and just remote learning, you know, is we had day one of term two here in the ACT and it was all sort of done online and we had, you know, Annabelle and Elliot staring at screens most of the day and it just... I don't know. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't work for me. But I, I, I've been on the record on this podcast before about being a bit of a luddite with that stuff. So it's possible it's my attitude. But um, yeah, did that's it have been... a meltdown like every other state? Did you? Well, no. We there was no meltdown. I think this the we. But we we've had a pretty laissez-faire attitude to it, which is look, we'll get done what we can get done, but we're not beating ourselves up around not 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 doing something that's on the timetable, which I think is the right approach. Definitely. Definitely. Look, let's let's um, you know, experiment with a play-based curriculum for children over five. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic idea. Well, that might that might get into one of the uh, the discussion points for tonight, actually. So we might hold that point, Leanne, because I think we might come back to that okay. one. Um, yes, but we we hope everyone out there listening is doing well. We know everyone's having dramatically different experiences of these, you know, crises. But I think the general advice of be kind and be kind to yourself in particular. Um, and that, that I've been particularly Are you remembering to be kind to yourself. I'm trying. I'm I'm, I'm not per- I'm not I'm not good at that at the best of times, Lisa, and particularly not at stressful times. So I need to do better on that. But one of the things I will note that I've seen a lot of on social media, which is good, and it reminded me when Leanne was talking about completing her PhD, is that. Um, you know, this is a pandemic, not a productivity um, boon. So just because, you know, there was some mad person tweeted, you know, if you don't get to the end of this crisis without a new skill or without a, you know, having learned something or then, you know, you've wasted it. And that's not not the experience for most people, I think. I think if you get to the end of this yeah. without having murdered each other, that's the, uh, that, that's the, that's, well, that, that's I mean, the theory. I, it's an, it was an interesting thing. I saw that same tweet and, you know, it Zoom infuriated meetings. me. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And and Zoom meetings, um, one of the things I love is that Zoom meetings are full of people's pets and their children, um, <laughs> which is lovely. But I know for my colleagues, they're managing young children and, you know, they're, they're, it's a really hard struggle. And their pets, how they, <laughs> <laughs> they have to walk their dogs 24 times a day. <laughs> But it's but it is, isn't it? It's a completely different world, and the idea that you would just use your extra time to do that is ridiculous. Yes, yeah. what extra time? <laughs> and I think that for some people, like it, it constantly strikes me that for some people they do have extra time. And they're sitting at home by themselves with not much to do, whereas other people. Have never been so busy in their life as they try yeah. and manage thirty million Zoom meetings in a day and you know additional work. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's a very it's a very it's strange, different. yeah, very strange crisis experienced differently for everybody. So I suppose we would just say to everybody, hope you're all okay. 
Mm. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, we might do, before we get into the main topic for discussion, we might do a little bit of plugging. There's been a, we, we, we haven't done a podcast for a little while, but we have been a bit busy uh, with a couple of other things. So, Lisa, I might get you to maybe talk about the very exciting and interesting COVID-19 conference you put on with Samana Slattery, of which uh, all three of us were involved. So I think Leanne and I presented, <laughs> and you were the, the sort of head honcho behind it all. Tell us a bit about how it went and if people can access it after the fact. Oh, look, it went really well. I think we had lots of people um, booking into the sessions. I think, you know, some of the... I listened to all um, 20 of the sessions, not all of each one because I was going between simultaneous sessions. But we have some amazing people in the sector and they willingly shared their knowledge and information, much like you two did. I particularly liked both of your sessions. Um, and no. I guess know. that means we won't cut you off right now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it, it was, you know, we had lots and lots of positive feedback from everyone that listened to it. So um, I hope that, you know, people did participate. And for those that couldn't or didn't know about it or anything like that, because we did it very quickly, we are going to release recordings of all the of the sessions um, over the, in the next week or so, so that you can get those, you know, at a cheaper rate and get them all and yeah, you know, listen to the ones um, that you really wanted to, including Leanne's, who had a bit of a sound problem the first time, and she's very willingly re-recorded it, so you've Aww, got a, a, yeah. a new Aww. version of. And yeah, I, I think I think the first one was better, but you know we do what we can, right? Yeah. It was funny because the first the first one I could see people were there, which was lovely because I could see all their names coming up and they were saying wonderful things. You know, hello, it was so nice. And then when I re-recorded, I thought, oh, this is really boring. <laughs> yeah, we've kind of um, realised that a lot of people that do presentations are used to getting instantaneous feedback so you need to build that in when you're doing conferences <laughs> online well, I think you're used to seeing people in front of you but I think you yeah. could get a sense of that with this online because you had the chat box there just for a little while which was lovely when people were saying hello um so you kind of got that sense that there were people listening which was lovely yeah, <laughs> yeah which was great but then a re-recording is like, oh, right. I'm not a, I'm not a film star, but I'll do this anyway. Because it is very strange just presenting to your own laptop in your lounge room. I find that yeah. I found that a very yeah. weird experience. Yeah. Well, we've been delivering professional development online for the last month from early start, and um, everybody's just very, very good at it now. But also, there is, you know, interaction within that. So it's a, it's certainly a different platform. That is for sure. That well, is, but I would have thought that you two were used to it. We put out a podcast every week where you're just talking into the void. But yeah. we're talking to each other. Yeah, and we don't have to stare oh. at a screen. I, I look around and do other things. I, you know, come in with clear <laughs> eyes at particular <laughs> points and. 
does his Don't you look at the screen to see thing. the next thing you're supposed to be saying? Well, occasionally. No. No, occasionally. No. But not very often. Yeah, I Google stuff that you say, Lisa. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just check that. Mm, yes. Yeah. Lisa, you know people <laughs> who have listened to this podcast. tweeting during the podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, people you, People listen to it. They, they know we are not staring at some amazing run sheet that is, <laughs> that is immediately did. They've heard the random tangents we go off yeah. on. <laughs> This one's particularly so tonight. We're seventeen minutes into the housekeeping section. So I think I don't I don't think anyone thinks we're following some amazing structure here. (laughs) (laughs) But Leanne, you had a brilliant segue then to the next point. So we should say huge congrats to Lisa and Samana Slattery for getting that on so quickly. Great work and so quick and it's wonderful. Well done. Yeah. Um, but Lisa, again, you were just talking about, sorry, the amazing work uh, that the uh, UAW Early Start um, program has been doing over this time as well. And of course, we had some fantastic people from the uh, from Early Start on episode, oh, I'm going to say 121 or 122. I've lost track of the COVID-19 like episodes. That was a long time now. ago. Martin that was such a, Joe, yes. It was, but it was such a fun episode. But tell us a bit a bit more about um, yeah. what's been happening and what's uh, available. Oh, well, we, we've been pushing some free PD out there. And I know that there are professional development providers that are, you know, they're putting out some fantastic stuff. We, we've we really just been putting this out and we're, we're um, prioritising rural and remote um, areas because it's, of course, they don't get what everybody else gets um, and in this environment. So we, we've done that, which has been great. Um, and that's evidence-informed uh, PD that has come from the research that the University of Wollongong has done with Early Start. And so that's been great. That's been wonderful, engaging lots of people. And the other thing that we have been doing, well, I've been doing this, is these conversations, expert insights. By the way, I'm not the expert, which is a relief <laughs> for everybody, I would say. But I talked to very clever um, researchers from the University of Wollongong in a kind of I don't know, sort of like a lounge chair style, sort of happened by accident the first time, but seems to be continuing. And the one that you'll share with everyone, Liam, is on homeschooling. So you might want to watch that one too, so you can hear about um, an insight from one of our researchers. But there's new stuff going up and it's it's in conjunction with the discovery space and the discovery space is doing a beautiful job of sharing creative um, experiences and things from the discovery space with families at home and also doing a, a discovery to you which is like an educator session with children at home so there's yeah some lovely things happening from early start very clever people very talented um, and I'm lucky to be there so, there you go. Yeah, well, I think it's amazing that you can do that and, yeah, you can provide that for free to the sector. I think it's... That's so yeah. good. Yeah, well, it's, it's... And to families as well. Yeah, that's right, to families. And I think what Early Start's trying to do is just do as much as, as possible that can be done um, in the sector now. And the, the other thing that is which I'm really happy with is that we have found that some um, educators and teachers have been made redundant and they're able to engage in this PD to just keep themselves inspired and active in the sector. And I, I, that's something that's really kind of touched my heart, I think, because I feel like we're still keeping the workforce moving. You know, those people who have, who have lost their jobs, they're still engaging, which I think is 
incredible on their part. Wonderful. Well, we'll have links to all the things we've just sort of discussed there in the show notes. But um, yes, like we said, this is, you know, no one should be feeling pressure to, you know, be, be, you know, getting major new qualifications and things. But it is great that, you know, during this time there is, you know, I think there's been a move to having more stuff available, which is great. And I definitely recommend all of those things that we've just talked about. Let's move on. I think to the to the main the main topic for tonight. So, I think the we were we were sort of pushing back and forth about different ideas of things we wanted to discuss for tonight, and then we sort of came up with an overarching topic that I think hit on a few of the things we've been talking about behind the scenes between the three of us. And it was sort of this general heading of um, how uh, why or why have ECEC services and schools been treated differently during the COVID nineteen crisis? Because I think we would all agree they have, and the reasons why are. Uh, interesting and illuminating for a whole range of things around policy and approaches and what the community thinks of ECEC as well as what the government thinks of ECEC. But we should probably start by, you know, I guess laying down some markers for uh, what do we mean by, by treated differently? How have ECEC services and schools, to use, you know, these two parts of the education system, been treated differently? So, Lisa, I thought I might maybe turn to you first. Can you think of some some you know, concrete examples of how we've seen that that differing differing treatment. I think there's been um, an overwhelming publicly public debate about when schools should go back and how they should go back, and you know what the impact of that is on school teachers as well as on children. And I don't think there was that kind of public debate about children about our services i think it was just expected that we'd continue to operate um i think that you know the the social distancing physical distancing in schools was considered whereas nobody expects early education care services to you know even remotely be able to put it, uh, physical distancing into place I think there was a lot um, of consideration about the impact of, you know, um, children's education in schools and the impact by of missing out on more education. Whereas, apart from one throwaway line from Scott Morrison about, you know, a child never gets their preschool year back, there hasn't really been much impact much consideration about early education it's uh, you know there's been a greater consideration of it as a child minding thing rather than you know as something that children deserve to get um and i think there's also been a lot more consideration about the impacts on teachers of schools returning i think i said that but it's it's one of the things where you can tell that the um, the impact of the unions that are working with school teachers is a lot stronger than the impact of the unions that are working with early education and care services. So they're kind of like the main ones, I'd say, really. 
yeah, thanks. Thanks, Lisa. I think absolutely. You've hit on the key ones there, which is I think the the approach around closures for for schools. And I find it fascinating because someone, particularly in the ACT, where they've been determined not to use the word closed, um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the shift to remote learning. I think we've seen variations of that uh, nationally, but that we kind of never got to that point in, in early education, which surprised me. I remember vividly, and it's it's interesting. We've had so much. Uh, so much has been thrown at us over the last sort of eight weeks that um, the things have shifted so quickly. But I can remember, in particular in those early weeks, we were basically operationally planning for the fact that it will eventually will be shut down. It may just be for a month or two months or three months, but we kind of figured we'd be following that trajectory. And it's interesting that that, that hasn't happened. And I think there's also a bit of a silence around what, which is good and bad, silence around what the expectation is of uh, services with children at home, and we haven't seen that in schools. There's been a definite um, demand for teachers to teach both in the environment and remotely. If children turn up, then they have to teach them in schools and they also have to um, accommodate those who are at home. So there's that split kind of pedagogy, if you like, or a way or practice that they have. But there's been and, and there's been support and, and resources put into that in various ways, but not always the best. But there hasn't necessarily been this focus for early childhood services. I think they've taken up the um, challenge to do that, but I think that there's a bit of a silence around that. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a that's a really good point. Well I think that touches on another issue which is funding and this this is obviously this is a really obvious point but i think it's worth stating is that the obviously the approach the government's had to take with how uh, services are funded is radically different because uh, obviously schools are uh, uh, you know their public schools are funded directly by the government so there's no there's there was no there was never any you know uh, you know funding crisis that was facing the sector whereas due to the you know the childcare subsidy arrangements and the bizarre mixed model market model we have that, that that did happen in early education, which meant there had to actually be a specific funding package for early education. So there was obviously just a significant difference there, just around what the government had to do to keep these things going. Mm, yeah, and it it does highlight. It really shows that difference between an operational model where schools are just funded to run and the the other model which we have where families are funded to take their children to early childhood settings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, they used to be, used to be like that. Like well, now yes. we don't. No, that's right. <laughs> but it is, but it is a different, it's obviously, as Liam said, we need to have a, have a different model because, because that wasn't the way that they were funded, but, yeah, it really has sort of it throws the market model into um, the light for sure. <laughs> if it needed to be. Absolutely. Well, I think we've hit on a number of key differences there. I think there would be a whole bunch more, but I think they're the they're the big areas. So I think the the meat of this discussion, the big the, the thing we wanted to talk about tonight was, I guess, then why why are we seeing those differences? I think the answers to these again are clear, and I don't think anyone's under any illusion that anyone was thinking that the ECEC sector would be treated the same as schools. I, I, that certainly wasn't anything that I would think would be happening. But I think that why they've been treated differently 
is opens up some some interesting discussion points um, for us. So, you know, Leanne, I might go to you first this time. You know, what when what's your big answer to that to that question? Why we see such a different approach with these two parts of the education sector? I'd love to say there's two reasons, but I'm going to leave that to Lisa. <laughs> two reasons, but I think the, the one thing is one of those two things is that we still haven't decided what um, early childhood education and care is for. So we're still a little bit unsure about whether it's for workforce or whether it's for you know, workforce participation or whether it is for um, children and family wellbeing or whether it's for children's progress in the education system. So we've still got lots and lots of different reasons. So that's one of the reasons. And I think our history you know, right back to the 1800s about why early childhood education and care came about was to, it was for those two different reasons, but it was to serve, you know, serve the community. And I think that in some ways what's happened is that it is sort of very rooted in the past. So it's it's definitely serving the community um, in almost a, you know, a, a a replicated way, I suppose, of what, what the very early history was um, for children and and their mothers um, in in Australia. So I, I see that that's kind of a historical perspective, and also because we're still we're still you know not one hundred percent sure about what it's for, and therefore it's funded in five thousand different ways, and creates a, a very different um, model that needs to be addressed. So they'd be my reasons. Wonderful. Thanks, Leanne. I th- I what are you, Lisa? Look, I think there's one other one which, um, you know, is just the scale of it. I actually checked how big we are compared to schools mm. and there's about um, 3,948,811 roughly students at um uh at at schools in new south wales oh sorry in australia and there's nine and a half thousand schools across australia whereas so essentially four million students you know a bit under ten thousand schools whereas in our sector we've got 1.3 million children over about thirteen thousand settings so we've got more places but um, not as many students. But I think there's also just something about the fact that schools, a school is a school. People know what a school is, even if they haven't been to one for years and years and don't have children, they see them on the street, they see children in uniforms, etc. They know what a school is. Whereas an early education and care centre uh, is that a preschool? Is that a long daycare centre? Is that that tiny place with the funny sign on the corner of your street? You know, is that a family daycare mum, as I heard them called today, rather than as an educator? You know, like, what is that? And so I think just they've been treated differently because of their nature and because of what politicians, as much as the general public, understands about them. Mm. Mm. I think that's a really good point. 
My, I've, I've got a small conspiracy theory about this, which I, which uh, oh, I, I yes. love good conspiracy theories. <laughs> too much time in isolation. I too guess. much time in isolation. <laughs> so yeah, um, that's right. I've got a big uh, uh, on my wall in front of me. There's there's lines going from photos of Scott Morrison to you know all those kind of things. No, um, <laughs> I normally float these conspiracy theories just for you two to to pat me on the head and tell me what's actually happening. So I'm doing this kind of as as an, as an exercise as well. But my oh yeah, sure. So I've been fascinated. I have been spending a lot of time off social media recently, but um, but we're we're never dipping in and out. And prior to that, I've been fascinated by the discussion around the medical advice on the ability of children, or or the safety, I guess, of you know schools and early education services to remain open. It's been, I think, this will, this has been a really interesting dividing line, I think, for people because. The government, the federal government, I should say, I should say, is following the published medical advice, which is clear. So this is not, you know, Scott Morrison making this up. The medical advice that they are receiving is sort of saying, well, it is safer to open. And but we are seeing a lot of movement from advocates and unions saying, well, that's clearly from a common sense perspective, not the case. And I find that dividing line fascinating because my instinct you know as someone who tries to rely on research and evidence and data is that well if that's what the medical advice is saying we should accept it as we do with you know other contentious issues that maybe shouldn't be contentious such as climate change and those kind of things so it's interesting that you know we're seeing the lefty progressive side of things sort of dismissing scientific advice i am getting to a point i promise um i you know there is a big common sense part of me that goes well of course if you you know have have open slather in schools and early childhood centers look of course whether children are spreaders or not is largely beside the point it just means more people coming together which on the one hand we have these huge social distancing restrictions that don't seem to align with the idea that you would reopen schools fully. But anyway, but what my suspicion is that the government hasn't, the federal government hasn't been able to implement a whole bunch of stuff around schools because they're managed by the states. So states have been making uh, case-by-case decisions. And there's some evidence that they've been making decisions based on the strength of the individual, you know, teachers' unions in their states. And, you know, to that I say, great, more power and, and reason to join your union, people, surely, to protect your own health and safety. But... They have been able to do this with early education centres because in a weird Byzantine way, they do fund them. Now, they've been really clear that, you know, the states would direct services to close. And I think with with very, very few individual exceptions, we haven't seen that. But I just wonder if this is a case of one of the reasons we're seeing different treatments here and one of the reasons schools are closing versus early education centres is that the government, if they could keep schools open, would have done so, but they can keep early education services open and they very specifically tied this, you know, this interim funding to you must stay open. That's my conspiracy theory. Well, it, it, I think there's two things. Of course, things of course, Lisa. That. that was part of my conspiracy One, theory too. It was like Lisa's going to have two yeah, things to say about this. There was two things that I'd say about it. One is that while we've been recording this episode, the state, um, uh, the prime minister, has announced that he'll offer independent and Catholic schools a 25% advance on next year's federal funding on the condition that they have at least half their students in classrooms by June 1. Wow. So, in fact, he's kind of bribing um, the schools that he does have control over their funding to get those children back, right? Now, whether or not they take that up because or not is another matter, but I can imagine, you know, like... 
some of these schools receive a huge amount of, of funding and, you know, even though interest rates are crap, having that money in the bank would probably be a good thing. So I think it's quite possible that, that um, we will see, you know, some more schools. I think we'll see a gradual push once, once the private schools go back then the state schools won't be able to hold out as much as what they have. Um, and I've, I've completely forgotten what the second thing was, but it was even more important <laughs> but than that, that. That, Lisa, is because when you say um, there's two things, you've only got one and then you use <laughs> no, it up. Got two. But you were so heavily two, invested. You were so heavily invested in that first one, you didn't have time to think up the second one. No, I didn't. I had it really clearly. It was on the top of my head and it's just disappeared. Was it yeah, around the it'll point? come to me. Well, was it around the point because I was keen to get some sort of take? Because I think this is a, a really interesting issue, this idea around the medical advice, which we... It, I, find it, it, I, I find it a really fascinating discussion because... I can absolutely see both sides of the viewpoint, but I get I do get a bit annoyed when I see you know anything Scott Morrison puts out now. If you just look at the comments under the tweet, is just it, it's nothing but you know abuse, and it's and it's as bad as you see on the other side of politics yeah, as well. And I find that yeah. stuff absolutely frustrating. The idea that you know Scott Morrison is in you know is not doing the best job he thinks he he can, and the the medical advice is published, so it's not like he's making this up. And the idea that the medical professionals involved are somehow you know being paid off to do a political outcome, I just find ridiculous as well. No, but I. I think the thing that, yeah, like high-level commentators are saying is, yes, children may not, yeah, like may not be super spreaders of it, but there's adults in there as well and you're not thinking or talking about them as much. Yeah, and that that is almost in a way a bit sort of offensive, isn't it? Because you do, it's almost like, there's this silence in schools or in early childhood settings that there is actually anybody in those apart from the children. Yeah. yeah. Because and they're I, just I a bunch of chicks, Leanne. Mostly I, chicks. But no, they're not important. so strange, so odd. It is mm. strange. And I think the, the argument that I find convincing, because I think the – one of the, the one of the one of the uh, the takes of analysis I've seen on this is that there's not so much that there's no evidence. It's not so much that there is strong evidence that it's safe. It's that it's more that there's no strong evidence that it's unsafe, which is a different proposition because this yeah. is still very yeah. early in a global pandemic. The argument I find convincing, and it's an argument I've actually had with some bureaucrats in the ACT uh, Education Director, it is the very strange messaging which is around. Um, the playground opposite my house has a big sign saying, you know, do not yeah. play here. While we, and, you know, I can't go down to, um, like I was doing a lot of this anyway, but you know, I can't go down to the local pub for, for, for a drink. But the, but that it's somehow, you know, it's safe for schools to, it just, those two, you know, the, the conflicting advice around very clear social distancing, but, you know, schools and early childhood centres can remain open. That that's an argument which I, which I pay attention. To. I think you would have to choose one or the other. But in yeah, Australia, I, we haven't. I agree. I agree with you, Liam. I think in some ways it it has been about 
making those decisions based on reducing the number of social contacts. And that's quite apart from the schools and the early childhood settings being open, which I, I don't really understand. But I think it's it, all of those things were done will reduce the social contacts. Well, okay, well, we don't want to reduce them that much. But do you, do you know what I mean? Like I feel like the decisions were made for the right reasons and then some were made for the wrong reasons. Mm. And I think clearly that made no sense. But I just, no, like no, no. I, I I agree. And I think it, yeah. Well, I think what we have to. I think this is what's been maybe tricky for people in the sector to understand is that the. And I've been <laughs> because I'm a slightly sad person. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about. Um, this is one of the reasons we run one. Obviously, is I've been obsessed with podcasts for a long period of time. But I've been listening to a lot of really interesting podcasts talking about the trade-off in inverted commas around economic outcomes and health outcomes and that it's not actually as simple as a trade-off and that there are no, actually it's, no that's always a bit of both there are overlaps it? in both but that we have there's a conservative government in place so the idea that we wouldn't have an approach that particularly for the work we do because unfortunately as we said right at the top the community view and particularly the government is very much weighted towards workforce participation not education is that mm. That you know that was kind of it's it's actually not surprising that we're seeing these kind of differences in in how particularly things like closures are managed in the sector. Mm. I yeah. did remember what the other thing I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the email that came out to services today. Did either of you see <gasps> that? No, see, I'm on leave. I'm on leave this I week. I didn't get it. it come in but I just haven't had a chance to look Basically at it. it was hectoring services and there's a lot of outrage amongst the outraged part of the sector because it was saying come on guys we're giving him money you know like stop refusing people childcare stop telling them they can't come you know like you're supposed to you know have as many people as you possibly can still following social distancing but you know like have more people there and i think that it's kind of interesting in that they actually don't really have a a stick to use service to use to get education and care services to you know to have people in our services, because while there's not full CS, you know, childcare subsidy funding, then other than a hectoring email, what else can they do? And I, I think that that is a very good point. And there are, I don't want to say there's two sides to this. I really don't want to do that. But, um, and I've just but there may well be. <laughs> well, I, I there's more than two, probably. There's, well, there's definitely more than two, and I, I can, I've just read that email actually while you've been talking yeah. about it. But I, I think it's the same thing as schools in a sense. Like maybe we should be partway pleased with that because the expectation is that something will happen, and I think that's the same with schools. There is an expectation that children will receive um, some kind of education or teaching. Maybe there's something good about that point. But no, not that's not why they're the doing right it. They don't reasons. care about the children. They're I... just care, cared about caring about all the media about, you know, nurse X couldn't get care. Yes, no? I, I, like... I get that and I understand that. But I guess maybe we can turn that a little bit around and say, you know, you still want 
bang for your buck, so how are you going to get it? And that this is this is a requirement and this is necessary. I do I understand what you're saying, but I, I'm just thinking, oh, what's another way to kind of frame it? Yeah. That's interesting. Well, we're we're, I mean, we're we're getting up to that magical one hour limit, which we try and impose on ourselves, which sometimes does. Oh my does, god, we've does... only talked about like we talked a lot about nothing. <laughs> <Which> didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Again, very strict run sheet, but you know who cares? But I think what we've talked about a little bit so far in this episode are some of the uh, some of the differences we see, and I think some of those are imposed, so they're not real differences. They are. They are imposed differences. I think I don't think there'd be any broad disagreement between the three of us that early education is part of the education system. There there are strong arguments for it to be you know not treated that differently. But I think I do want to. I I, I put this in here deliberately just so we can spend a few minutes on it. But I think because I I vividly remember um, I think being schooled by you one time, Liam, and I was in the midst of some massive rant about um, that exact topic, which was you know basically all our problems as advocates would be solved if we could just get early education in the education sector and treat it more like schools and you very sensibly pointed out there are some there are there are very strong arguments for us also have maintaining individuality and that there are differences between what we do and what primary schools in particular do and that they should actually be celebrated and retained and upheld so i guess in the context of this you know covid-19 health crisis um what are some of the real differences between what the early education sector and other uh, other education other parts of the education continuum and um you know i've got here you know do they do they matter do they matter during at this particular time and you know do they matter full stop so i might given i've dropped you in it there leanne as this person who's made me think about more about this over the last i can't remember when you told me that but it might have been over a year ago um it's been a while ago i think, I think it was but the, you know what, what what for you are the the real and tangible and good differences between what we do and what we see in the schools I think it's done differently and I think it's the community connection and the connection with families. And one of the reasons that it's different and we probably still haven't worked out exactly how to do it remotely is, I want to be very careful here, is about the foundational, um, the foundations of early childhood education are relationships and a pedagogy which is not based around direct instruction. So that is actually a very hard um, sort of, I suppose, framework to translate to something else apart from face-to-face. And that, that said, I know that a lot of the focus for schools is just on maintaining the relationship. So maybe the other way of looking at this is that schools are finding out what really matters as well. That might be the wrong thing to say, though. <laughs> I just, I no, just I don't, like I don't think it's the wrong thing to say, but I've actually been a bit surprised that more services don't see the need to maintain their connections with families. Well, I've seen a lot doing it. I've seen a lot getting involved in connecting up with families and and doing some sort of remote um, connection with them. So, yeah, I've, I've That's actually good. seen that a lot. That's good that you've seen it. I've seen some mothers that are, are not, mm. that just don't see families as an important part of what they do. That might be an 
a whole other episode, Liam. Do you think? Well, my the, the, what, what I would say to that, Lisa, I find that interesting, is that one of the other differences I think we see between services and schools, and particularly in this context, and I'm talking here from experience as someone who, as I said at the stop, has just done day one of, you know, turn two of remote schooling and have found it challenging and, you know, and, and difficult, not just from an IT sense, but I think just from a, um, a relationship sense with the school and and. and, and facilitating that connection between children and school. Um, what I would say there is this is another difference where ECEC services are far less supported to do this. So when I hear from... Yes, I totally agree. Yeah, so totally. when I hear yeah. that there may be... that services are maybe not as investing as much time and energy in maintaining... So I, I may have misunderstood what you were saying there, Lisa, because I think I started answering the question in my head before you finished, and I think you were talking about something else. But what I was... <laughs> what I was I'm sorry. What I was hearing was that there were maybe people who weren't putting in time and energy. So we, we know there are a number... There are you know, a percentage of families you know, across, across the sector who are keeping their children at home but remaining enrolled, and that there are, there are services who may not be investing a huge amount of, you know, uh, resource or energy into maintaining relationships with yeah. those family. Yeah. yeah. So my response yeah. to that, and, it, and look, Lisa, it's very possible that I could be guilty of that in my role, um, you know, with, with the organisation I work with. But what I would say is that services, I think, have had to just respond so quickly to, you know, funding systems changing overnight, just, you know, maintaining financial viability, that it's been really difficult to then put in place uh, you know that that sort of change to how we operate, particularly to make sure it's done in a way that upholds children's rights, that upholds professional ethics. Um, but schools have had a huge amount of support to do that from their state and territory governments. Oh, from look, a whole yeah, range of stuff. I agree. Look, without, and without yeah. a doubt, Liam, I you know I have no doubt about that. But I think it's also because some education and care services consistently underestimate the importance of the role that they play with families. And I think this would be a, a fascinating episode for us to have. I always want education care services to understand that they are often the primary support system for families of very young children and that they are the ones that are keeping those families together just by affirming the role of the parent and affirming that the parent's doing a good job of parenting. And I think most people don't realise that that's what education care services do. But they do. They do that all the time. But it's never, I think, only a small number of services out of the total have that as an explicit part of their role. I think oh, I others do it because and they utterly disagree with you. I really <laughs> okay. do. I, I really do. Some, I... Let me say this and then I'll hear your point. I think <laughs> that some do it because it's marketing. You know, they have to keep the parents happy to keep the child enrolled, you know, but I think a lot of people just don't see that as their role. Okay, argue with me. So... I think that the family sort of perspective and the environment in which early childhood education and care happens is in that the child in the context of the family. And I think that people develop philosophies and it's not necessarily for marketing. I think it is something that is laid down in 
the learning that people do before they um, come to work in an early childhood education setting. There was more stuff in, there is more stuff in courses about the child in the context of the family than there is about leadership, which I think should change. But anyway, <laughs> we won't go there. Um, and considering the community. So I, I think that that is actually a really embedded ethos in early childhood education. Liam, back me up. <laughs> I, I I agree with you both in the sense that Lisa, I, I Leanne, I agree. Oh. With, no, Leanne, I agree with what you said, and Lisa, I agree. We need a whole episode to discuss this because I <laughs> I have I have some strong views as well, and I think the I, look. It's look. It's also very possible that we've done so many of these. We I, I do remember we did an episode on what the market model means for sort of shifting the sector's focus on things. So I do think the market based model and the idea that families, whether we like it or not, are often customers first before they are valued partners in children's education warps how we approach families but i think that i I think you're right i think that is a that is a whole whole different episode but i want to um as time's ticking away what i want to do is obviously this you know advocacy remains a really strong motivating factor for this podcast and you know we will have to advocate differently after this is all over and probably during to be honest that we we know that the world is going to look different we know that there are going to be different things we're going to have to focus on i think we I can't remember if we opened this year or it might have even been last year, but we talked about, you know, what were the advocacy priorities for what was coming up? You know, this is going to change all everything we talked about back then. Um, but so I think the question is, you know, given that we've seen there has been a difference in how we've been treated compared to schools, how do we respond as advocates to this, um, you know, different in inverted commas treatment? So, you know, Lisa, what's the, you know, what are you thinking of in terms of advocacy, uh, both during and after this is all over? Look, I, th- I think that above all, the the pandemic has shown who the really important workers are in our society, and they include our educators and our early childhood teachers. And I think that one of the, you know, um, clear things that we've got to do is make sure that society doesn't forget that. And I think we also need to harness parents' enjoyment of free childcare, early education and care, to ensure that it always remains free. Yeah. 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 I don't think we can underestimate that, how big that's been. I think the government will be doing everything it can to try and just go back to to business as usual and pretend that this didn't happen. But you know, we are currently, you know, as we record this in, you know, right at the end of April, we are in the midst of government-funded, uh, access-free, government-funded early education that is free of charge to all families attending. Um, with the huge asterisks that there are obviously still huge question mark, the, the current level of funding isn't sustainable. Um, and it is only designed to get us to the end of this crisis, that we still have issues of equity around access because basically the people who are getting this free ECEC are those who are getting it beforehand and we know that there were issues around um, who was excluded under the old system. So it's not like this is a perfect system, but I think we we have to remember that in the midst of all this other insanity and, and the real challenges people are facing that this is something that's happening. So the argument that it can't ever happen now is gone because it's, it's happening right now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't like they just see this as a little blip on, you know, like I actually, I would not, Lee and I have had a $2 bet about this. I think they're going to go back <laughs> yeah. to 
childcare subsidy really quickly, like next week or the week after. Oh, really? Yep. That's soon. Yep. And you've, you've wagered a whole $2 on it. Yep. <laughs> it's clearly a strongly held view. <laughs> I don't remember ever accepting that bet, Lisa. Well, look, we'll obviously have uh, maybe, maybe you didn't, Liam. Will you accept my bet? I do, yes. But I think the <laughs> we'll obviously record a, a very quick bonus episode if that happens. But um, oh, yes. I think the other interesting thing that we've seen during this time is that... Where I hear the words, oh, Lisa, you're right. You're always right. It's got to happen one day, Lisa, just by law of averages. It's got to happen. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that's been making the the circles of the media and, um, and, you know, online and amongst advocates was uh, Jay Weatherall's article, I think, for the Fairfax Papers. So Jay Weatherall used to be the Premier for South Australia. He, during that time, he brought in Carla Rinaldi as a thinker in residence and I think got a a pretty deep uh, pretty deep dive into the the principles of children's access to early education and children's rights he's made the argument uh, in an article that the basically the states should take over the funding and regulation of early education and I wanted to quickly touch on that because I think there are parts of that argument I really agree with which is um, that we would see you know probably a stronger alignment with the overall education system and probably a better funding arrangement but I'm always hesitant about moving away from a national model, even with all its challenges and difficulties. You know, what would that mean for the national quality framework? Would it mean that we would see regulations and ratios and those things split off and we go back to the the old system, which I just think is is a bit of a nightmare. But, um, you know, we're obviously running out of time. But, Leanne, did you get a chance to sort of see that piece and what were your thoughts on it? Um, I didn't see the piece, no. But in terms of going back to the, the state, um, I think that that could only be proposed and applauded by someone who lives outside New South Wales because <laughs> we have, exactly the same we have historically underspent, undervalued and, and just, you know, really not done the right thing by early childhood education. And I think good things are happening. Like now, yes, we've got an excellent opportunity in terms of um, free preschool, but, you know, that's that's kind of like almost the the shame move really, wasn't it? Because everybody else was doing it, um, but perhaps it's done in a genuine way. So I, yeah, anything that would compromise the national quality framework, but I think, yeah, if you live in a great state with that kind of, with good things happening and that history laid down, then that's probably a good move. Yep. <laughs> well, the other thing I wanted to pick the brains of the two very smart advocates uh, on this uh, Skype call was that one I of the... I'll in- shut up so you can talk. <laughs> yeah, we better, we better just stand down now, I think, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, stop, stop being silly, you two. I'm talking to two people who have fought and won many advocacy battles in their time. So what we know, what we know is going to happen after this, one of the big battles we are going to face, is that the government's response to any sort of let's keep this, uh, you know, this the all these um, socialist uh, tendencies you've been throwing at us during the COVID-19 epidemic are going to leave the country with a huge uh, deficit, so a huge budget deficit. So the argument that's going to come back is, well, we just can't afford it. We have to be getting the budget back in track and we, you know, we've had to spend a huge amount of money to hibernate the economy and bring everything back and protect people. You know, we can't do free ECEC. Um, we can't do three-year-old preschool because, you know, look at the budget. We're in huge amounts of deficit. How, as advocates, do we, do we respond to that? Quite easily. It's um, uh, absolutely cheaper for them to do what they've been doing 
than it is to fund services the old way. It is utter madness, isn't it? That... Dead silence at the yeah. other Oh, end. no, I agree with you. I was going to come at it in a different way. I was thinking, you know, we're not we're, we're not going to open our borders anytime soon, so we don't need to worry too much about all of that stuff. So I, I think just print more money and um, subscribe to, you know, something like modern monetary theory and then we can pay for it and it'll be okay. <laughs> and we don't even need to argue for it. I like that. But Lisa, you're, you're, you're actually right there. The, the, the budgeted spend on what they're doing for the their, uh, relief package is actually less than what they're going to spend on the subsidy anyway. Yeah. So yeah. they're saving money through doing it like this. And I, I almost think I've got to do an article about that because it's like it's just amazing that who would have thought it was cheaper to fund services than to fund parents? Hmm. Yeah, like it's like it's a win-win situation. It's cheaper for governments. It's cheaper for parents. Yeah, let's continue it. It's almost like it's a great idea, and we should just continue with it. Anyway, mm. well, is there before I wrap things up? Is there anything we've we've left on the table? Any burning issues we didn't get to discuss that we wanted to to chuck in before we sign off? Um, the only thing that I wanted to say was that sometimes when you go forward like this, which we consider to be an advance, when it is scaled back, it's scaled back further than what, you know, like it, it's pulled back behind what already was there. So I think that we have to be really careful that there's no suggestion that there should be any change in ratios or regulations and that we really focus on the workforce, as Lisa suggested, and people have a personal responsibility there. So I think join the union. For sure. I want to count up the number of episodes where the, where the last <laughs> sentence or the very close to last sentence has been join the union. <laughs> <laughs> we could finish with the international if you like. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we did play that in our kitchen tonight. So we... <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be ripping that sound from a YouTube file somewhere and that'll definitely be playing us out. <laughs> but um, it was anything from you, Lisa? No. Oh, see, normally I start wrapping stuff up and you just go, oh, Liam, just before, just before, can I just say this? But now, of course, you've got nothing. I give, uh, no, I give you look, the time and space. I, I would like to say I think everybody should listen to um, Leanne's interviews that are <laughs> coming out. Um, for, How good are they, Lisa? Uh, They're so good. Oh, they are so good. You are such fibbers. You haven't even listened to them. I had to berate you for not listening. <laughs> but, Leanne, we can still recommend them because we know that everything you do is really, really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to see this uh, this, this couch oh. you were mentioning. Apparently, it sounds like a pretty fancy, cosy setup you've got there, Leanne. Oh, the chairs! I want one of them so badly. No, Leanne, do you so think nice. once you go back, you could actually slip one in to your pocket and bring it home for me? <laughs> there's been a lot of discussion about that, and there's a lot. There, there are more people in the queue before us. Let me tell Someone you. Someone actually found out who was selling them and sent me the link because I was going, "I want, I want, I want." But they don't <laughs> have them anymore. So it's like, oh, my God, it's my dream chair and I can't get it unless I kind of organise a break-in to a university. 
<laughs> yeah, might have to sell them for to recover the losses. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear the staff aren't helping much with that. So, yes, why not? <laughs> well, wrapping up, as we circle back to the start, you know, we hope everyone is is keeping well during this remain this 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 time that remains difficult for our entire community. We hope you're, uh, you know, completing any PhDs that you've got lying around that just needed to be done. Uh, you know, anything like that. But uh, in all seriousness, we hope everyone's doing well. We thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast and we'll probably be back to, unless there's dramatic, you know, funding announcements, which is always possible. And this time we'll probably be back to our sort of regular fortnightly Friday schedule. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time. the record button Liam. there we go <coughs> oh i haven't written an intro for this so normally so you, you you're giving me so much praise for the run sheet i've forgotten to run an in, write an intro though all right i'll oh, make yeah. one up. i'll make one up as you i go can do this. You let's, can do this. let's see if you can tell the difference between a written one and a one i'm making up <laughs> off the top of my head <coughs> mm-hmm. the covid 19 oh no i was i was in the right headspace lisa <laughs> Sorry. Not helpful. I don't know whether we were supposed to step in. I was just centering myself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. We're all a bit hysterical. We all need to be released from our homes. Yes.